This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for January 20th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Last week, we talked about the current situation in South Africa and how the emergence of a new variant of the SARS-CoV-2 virus has contributed to the spread of COVID-19. Today, we want to continue to look at what's going on internationally, and to help us understand what's happening around the world, we're joined by three guests, all members of the New England Journal of Medicine family. Gary Wong is one of our associate editors. He's a pediatric pulmonologist and allergist and a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. He's an expert on childhood asthma and other allergic conditions, but like most other physicians, he's been deeply involved in the response to COVID-19, both in Hong Kong and in mainland China. Krista Nottage was an NEJM fellow last year. She returned in the fall to her surgery residency in the Bahamas. And again, despite being a surgeon, Krista is part of the response to the epidemic in the Bahamas, whereas elsewhere, it's all hands on deck. James O'Connell is a current NEJM fellow, and when he signed up, I'm sure he expected to spend the year in Boston. Unfortunately, given the travel restrictions that COVID-19 has imposed, he has instead spent the year in his native Ireland. However, he comes into this year having spent a couple of years as an infectious disease registrar, so he's chosen the right preparation for the current situation. So let's start by asking the three of you, what's life like where you are? Have you been locked down? What do things look like in your hospitals? Let's start with Gary. Well, life has not been that bad in my city and hospitals, because even at the height of the outbreak in a city of 8 million, we're talking about 100 to 200 new cases per day. And the sense of insecurity among the staff was so high ever since the beginning. In fact, everybody actually would overdo in terms of you know, infection control and testing, the threshold of testing is very low. So as a result, we managed to keep the numbers relatively low, such that the ICU has never been overwhelmed by the number of cases. And in terms of the lockdown, yes, there are restrictions, but you can imagine, in many Asian cities, it's very crowded. So social distancing could be rather difficult. If you look at Hong Kong, for example, it was about one third the size of Boston, but the population is about twice. So it's difficult to so-called isolate and avoid crowds, but we managed to keep the numbers down. So it's not bad in our hospital. Krista, what's the situation in Nassau? Well, again, at the moment, we find ourselves a little changed, but we're somewhat in a battle for normalcy. So you are seeing absolutely everybody wearing their masks and trying to observe social distancing, which is kind of counterculture in an environment in a region where liming or getting together is a huge part of our socialization. In the Bahamas, we have a population of about 390,000. And of that COVID-19, we've had 8,000 cases. Uh, the majority being on New Providence Island, which is the island that I live on, the capital, which has about 270,000 persons of the 390,000 of my population. Total deaths, we've had about 175. So on the world scale, smaller and smaller numbers, the community is definitely feeling the impact. But I think when our first surge happened and our second surge in summer of last year, things were quite bad. The hospital was very overwhelmed. We had assistance come in from abroad and had a tent hospital built by Samaritan's Purse, for instance, to kind of offload our ICU and offload our general wards. 
Since then, we've been able to move back to somewhat level of normalcy. We only have about 13 cases hospitalized and that's spread over maybe four general hospitals in the Bahamas. And so our numbers have stabilized somewhat. New cases daily probably peaked around 20 to 30 and now we're having less than 10 new cases, less than five actually daily. So we're starting to level out and I'm hopeful that things will continue in this direction. And James, what do things look like in Ireland? Yes, life is very strange, of course, as it is in many countries. There isn't the same sense of optimism or renewal that typically comes after a new year. And I think COVID pandemic fatigue has certainly set in amongst the general population and the healthcare workers. At present, we're right in the middle of our third wave of COVID-19. In total, we've had over 170,000 cases, half of which are from this current wave. And we've had about 2,700 deaths from COVID-19, but how many more will materialise from this wave is yet to be seen in the coming weeks. So in our current lockdown, we have a plan that ranges from level one to five. So one being society being relatively open and then five being a lockdown. So that means that at the moment, there isn't any non-essential travel allowed five kilometres outside your house. Um, no non-essential retail open. Uh, there's no household visits allowed and there's no organised events or, or religious gatherings allowed with exceptions of funerals. Our schools have largely been open from September to December and, and they did great work to maintain that. Um, but at present, they're shut. Um, we had a six-week lockdown from October to December, which ended with um, significantly reduced incidents of COVID-19, but there was still community transmission. And so as we entered the kind of festive period around Christmas and New Year's, it meant that with community transmission and increased kind of household mixing, that it led us to where we are now. Thankfully, the peak of this third wave seems to have been reached and hospitalizations are starting to stabilize. So we've probably passed the worst of it. At no point have our, our ICUs been overwhelmed, but our hospitals have certainly been stretched at times. So Ireland has had other issues outside COVID-19 with Brexit in the United Kingdom. It's complicated the relationship between Ireland and the UK and the rest of Europe. How has that been working out? Well, COVID was obviously a very new thing since um, February and March of last year, but fortunately Brexit has been going on for four years. So you can imagine how tiring it is seeing uh, COVID in the news every day. We've had Brexit every day for at least four years. A lot of the actions needed to mitigate Brexit kind of socially had already been taken prior to COVID. So that burden largely wasn't there. Economically, the, the European Union and the UK spent most of 2020 negotiating a trade deal, which was very fraught at times, and that finally got completed in late December. I don't believe it has kind of complicated Ireland's relationship with Europe. Um, if anything, it's strengthened this. From a COVID-19 perspective, there are two countries on the island of Ireland. There's Northern Ireland and, and the Republic. And then on the island of Britain, there are three countries. So a lot of people thought that particularly when incidence of COVID-19 was low, had there been maybe greater cooperation between all governments on the islands, that more could have been done maybe to mitigate re-emergence of the virus. Um, at present, it's quite high numbers across all countries on the two islands. So it's kind of a, a null point. Krista, the situation in the Bahamas was also complicated. COVID-19 arrived in the midst of your recovery from Hurricane Dorian in 2019. So how did that change your efforts to deal with the pandemic? You're quite right, Steve, in that we were just coming off of the heels of Hurricane Dorian, which devastated two of our large northern islands, Grand Bahama and Abaco, in 2019. Really, we're talking about the same 360-degree vulnerability that small island states feel. It leaves us exposed to extreme weather on all fronts and also operates to make us vulnerable to the introduction of pathogens like this virus. 
with a very serious capability of wiping out populations like ours. 300,000, I mean, we've seen these numbers as the death toll in larger countries, and that would wipe out entire populations in the Caribbean. And so we're very aware that we have no landmass to run to and no landmass to spread across. When you talk about really trying to distance and isolate populations, I'm on an island right now that's 21 miles by seven. So spread out to where? Um, and there's nowhere to hide really. So post Dorian, we moved large populations from those two islands, Grand Bahama and Abaco to Nassau um, and tried to spread the persons across the other islands of the Bahamas. But again, that contributes to the number of persons per square mile. So one of the islands hardest hit by Dorian was also hit quite hard by the COVID-19 pandemic with a large number of infections. That was Grand Bahama, our second capital, which also had our second hospital, which was completely wiped out by the storm in 2019. And so already in Grand Bahama, the ICU was under a tent and we were back in hurricane season when COVID-19 really took its second peak in the Bahamas. And so it was a scary time, but thankfully we were spared another big storm this season. We've made it through. The vulnerability persists, and this is an ever evolving challenge with environment and health coming together amongst many other things. And so we're thankful that we made it through. The recovery process post-Dorian is still underway. The people have much fortitude and persons have started returning to their homes and started to rebuild on those islands. And so we look forward to a better future, but have to look out again for all of these threats on all fronts, as I mentioned. And Gary, what do things look like on the Chinese mainland now? Is Wuhan, for example, back to normal? Well, if you look at the peak of the problem. Actually, you know, with the exception of the province of Hubei and the exception of the city of Wuhan, you know, the vast majority of the other provinces were not that significantly affected. If you look at the total number of infected cases in China, over 80% were in the Hubei province and Wuhan. And now in Wuhan, basically, there hasn't been a new case for the last six or seven months. And the city basically is back to normal in terms of the work, the trade. And the only thing that is different, the outbreak has changed the behavior of the people. In fact, if you go out to the street to public places, whether it's indoor and outdoor, the vast majority of people are still wearing a mask. And in fact, the uh, hospital statistics also reflected that, you know, the number of respiratory infection, viral respiratory infections, and the number of asthma exacerbations have dropped significantly. And the same situation is happening here in Hong Kong too. So pretty much the most places within mainland China are basically back to normal. And of course, there, every now and then there were a few outbreaks. And for example, the outbreak in the Beijing market and also the outbreak in Qingdao a couple months ago started with a couple port workers who got infected and then brought the infection to the Qingdao Chess Hospital. And the response from the government has been just like what they have done and also some of the countries in Asia have done is when they identified cases, they quickly would upscale the testing capability and the scale of the testing around the people who are potentially infected or from the same area. 
And because early in the beginning, we soon realized there are a lot of people who get infected. They're asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. There was no way one can really pick those patients out by their clinical presentation. So testing was a very important tool in identifying those who are infected and isolate them and then stop the chain of transmission. So despite, you know, outbreaks here and there, uh, these outbreaks have been controlled quickly by isolation, massive testing, and also limitation of people movement from the potential area with cases that may spread to the other provinces. So Gary, you mentioned that transmission largely was confined to two provinces in China and that testing and limitation of movement you think are the key differences because from where I sit in the U.S., transmission is out of control as we've all witnessed. And I'm curious as to other factors that you think may have made a difference between how things were controlled in China where there was substantial transmission at the epicenter initially a year ago and what other factors do you think played a role in containment in China versus elsewhere in the world? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things that happened in, in China and also in Asia in general, because quite a few places, countries, regions like, for example, you know, mainland China and Hong Kong, Vietnam, Taiwan, Singapore, uh, these places went through SARS-1 in 2003. And uh, a lot of us actually who have witnessed, and in fact, a lot, you know, big percentage of population still remember the story back then. And of course, a lot of people were infected and died from SARS-1. And with that, the use of masks very early on was close to 100%. When you go out to the street, Anywhere you would see the vast majority of people, with the exception, some very young children not wearing a mask. In fact, you'd be surprised, you know, seeing a one-year-old wearing a mask, in, in fact, with no difficulty at all. So that probably also helped because of the hard lesson learned in 2003. So they know these measures help. And now because even at the beginning, other than Wuhan, the testing capability was quickly upscale so that there was really no problem of getting a test done. For example, in our hospital, in the very early beginning, we get the test done, you know, three batch every day. So we get the results back in about six, seven hours. So it's easy to identify infected patient. Another thing I do think it's very important is in the majority of Asian cities, and in mainland China, it's very crowded. So isolation at home, basically it's very difficult. If you send a patient who is infected, not very sick, go back home. Basically that person probably would spread the virus around. So the isolation procedure within Asia is primarily is whoever is infected, whether that person has any symptoms or not, they get isolated from the rest of the population. And that's why there are these big centers, particularly in Wuhan, there's these big so-called step-down hospital converted from community centers and things like that. And all those are for these 
asymptomatic infected people. So combination of the hard lessons learned in 2003, the use of universal masking, the rapid upscaling of testing. And of course, the testing will also need to rely on the cooperation of the residents. You know, for example, when one look at the Qingdao outbreak, you know, they managed to do testing on 10 million people in five days. You know, no matter how big your police department, you cannot go out and send the policemen out there to grab the people. They basically, the people, they would line up from early in the morning, seven, eight o'clock in the morning till 11 at night to get the test done. And within that five day period, for example, now people are not allowed to leave the Qingdao area unless their test negative. So I think the combination of all these measures probably would contribute to the relatively low number of infection and also the rapidity in controlling transmission. Gary, your points are well taken. And from where I sit in the U.S., it is a bit frustrating how we have stood up testing or failed to stand up testing. And the other point that you make is the turnaround time, a test where I get a result a week from now doesn't help me in infection control and community public health intervention. So aspects, at least in the US, for some of the parameters you mentioned, have missed the mark. Krista and James, I would be interested in your reflections on how masking, testing, and these public health responses played out in your communities and what worked well or could be done better. So when I came home, after my fellowship at the NEJM, I returned home in July, and that was the first weekend that our borders opened to international travel, and then we closed down very quickly. I say that to say that part of our success, I guess, in controlling the spread of the virus, or partial success, somewhat success, um, has been in complete lockdowns. And maybe that has been easier for places that have small populations such as ours, because we were under extreme lockdown. So after the first border opening, we had a huge surge. That's when our second surge came, when we allowed international travel back in July. And we saw our numbers increase astronomically, and our government put us on 24-hour lockdown. Everybody stay at home, aside from one hour allowed outside in your own backyard for exercise. And we were like that for a few weeks. After that, the constraints kind of lifted uh, progressively into you can exercise in your neighborhood for one hour a day. And then it became evening lockdowns from 7 p.m. to 5 a.m. plus full weekend lockdowns from 7 p.m. on Friday to 5 a.m. on a Monday. All holidays, we were under 24-hour lockdown. Nobody move. So it's kind of like if you remember the song, nobody move, nobody get hurt. That is the operational standpoint that we were at. In terms of testing, that was a huge issue. We had no tests. We had very few tests. The tests were taking too long to give you your results. So those standpoints, we experienced the same issues initially, and we have had some improvement. So the turnaround in our testing has become much more 24-hour type turnarounds. Unfortunately, testing is still not widely available in terms of free. It's not freely available, I should say. For the most part, we are paying for COVID-19 testing outside of inpatient hospital setting. So that is another hurdle and a challenge to our population because these tests are expensive. 
I wanted to add that initially we were operating kind of out of fear. And so all of our movements to battle the pandemic, to battle the rising number of virus infections were reactive. We were gowning completely. I mean, the full spacesuit, everything for the most minor procedures. We were operating out of fear because we didn't know what was happening and we didn't know what to expect. Now, I think we've evolved a little um, and we're somewhat adding experience to that. And so we're starting to strategize. So just in the last week or two, our hospital has begun testing all admissions. I know that that sounds crazy that we've only just started that, but we've only just built the capacity to do that. And so now every admitted patient is tested for COVID-19. And so we're starting to catch up with real numbers. We're starting to catch up with dealing with the virus at the population level. And masking, our population has been very, very responsive to masking. The vast majority of persons, like Gary said, are wearing masks. And children under the age of two are not, but they're very cognizant that their parents and their siblings are wearing masks. And so my little niece, who's only two years old, wants to wear a mask because she wants to be part of everyone else. So that's what I've been seeing locally. Yeah, for Ireland, testing has certainly evolved throughout the pandemic. When it first hit back in March, our testing capacity was relatively limited. Um, It was through our National Virus Reference Lab. Eventually, other hospitals got the equipment to to perform the COVID-19 testing and the capacity to to make the reagent for the testing was was escalated also. As of now, on a weekly basis, there's the capacity to do over 100,000 tests and the population of the country is 5 million, so it's pretty robust in that sense. In terms of PPE equipment, um, again, we were quite limited at the start because this kind of caught many Western countries by surprise, including Ireland. We had uh, several kind of commissioned flights which purchased PPE equipment from China through an airline here in Ireland, which uh, kind of sorted that out uh, relatively early in the pandemic as well. In July, our case numbers were very low. We were down to zero some days in single digits and probably relatively close to elimination, probably a number of weeks away. But we had reopened our society at that point where people were allowed to move around the country, um, kind of meeting indoors and working indoors was allowed again. And there were some social events happening, such as sports uh, at that point also. In terms of masking, it was starting to be advised um, to the general public, I believe, around August. It became a law or legislated for later on in the year, I think around September. Again, as Gary said, kind of previous experience feeds a lot into that. So Ireland hasn't had um, an epidemic for quite a long time. So while masking is quite good now, I mean, it's very rare to see people indoors uh, without a mask. There was a learning curve to kind of get to that point, which didn't happen overnight. It took uh, several weeks and even months to actually get to the point where we are now, where masking is quite uh, highly accepted. Gary, over the course of the illness, the treatment of inpatients has been changing considerably in the U.S. What's been happening in Hong Kong? Very similar. At the beginning, of course, particularly with the initial report showing very high mortality. So the initial batch of the patient were treated with, you know, the Calitra, interferon, and also, I would say, rather non-judicious use of steroid. But as the disease evolved and more and more data coming out, um, there are also medications that are licensed under EUA in the United States, but not quite available in Hong Kong. So that's out of the question. So 
it does you know, evolve over time. And we did at once prepare about getting convalescent serum from patient. But the total number overall in many Asian cities, including Hong Kong, are relatively small. And the number of very sick patients, it's also very small. And as a result, I think the treatment other than steroid did not really play a big role in the management of the ICU patients. So other than that, I do not see any major role of any specific medication, particularly in the infected population in Asia. Krista, what's going on in the Bahamas? So I know that in the Bahamas, we have had many discussions about the best way to treat COVID-19 positive patients based on the world discussion and kind of what could we offer our population and at what cost. And so I know that um, our Ministry of Health was able to procure some of the remdesivir treatments for the most severe cases, for instance. But for the most part, our patients have been treated with supportive care. I've seen a lot of vitamin D, I know, a lot of vitamin D prescriptions, multivitamins, zinc. Those are the kind of peripheral treatments that have been given to patients with COVID-19. And of course, those would be the mild, milder cases, uh, moderate and severe cases treated in the ICU again, supportive treatment. And um, in terms of one standout treatment above the other, I haven't noticed any. Um, being in surgery, I'm not dealing with those patients firsthand oftentimes, and so I may not be the best position to answer that, but based on my engagement with patients on the ward, that's what I've seen. I think even more so than Krista, uh, my clinical involvement has been limited, but um, in Ireland, I'm told um, we've been doing treatment that's probably very similar to the States, um, so the use of dexamethasone, kind of appropriate anticoagulation, and then meticulous management of their type 1 respiratory failure. There's been some limited access to other novel therapies such as tocilizumab through clinical trials. A lot of the hospitals in Ireland were involved in the solidarity trial, so that has helped uh, also. In terms of convalescent plasma, I, I don't believe we've been really using this at all here, but I do think it's being used more in the States. Just a question, Krista, to you. You mentioned that the hospital on Grand Bahama was devastated by the hurricane. And so tents were set up. How did ICU care work in that setting? Well, it's quite amazing. We did have assistance from outside. And I've mentioned the assistance came by way of Samaritan's Purse, who have an astronomical ability to respond to disaster in the acute setting. And they have ready-made ICU tents. They, they brought in a tent that was fitted like an ICU, ventilators, um, ICU beds, watertight coverage for those facilities. They have mobile ultrasound and x-ray machines. Of course, we didn't have CT uh, machines available, but it runs like an outdoor ICU. Now, add to that tropical storm winds and rain. I mean, it's not completely impervious. And so there were nights when I heard from nurses that uh, the walls of the tent were billowing in and out under the strain of the tropical storms that were passing. Luckily, we didn't have any major hurricanes. 
But for all intents and purposes, you're outside on the grass under a tent with an ICU machine bleeping kind of in the background. And they had patients on ICU beds being ventilated on the outside. Speaking to that also, we had two surgical theaters under the tents. Really something amazing to see. Outdoor where there was formerly a parking lot or an empty vacant lot, they made that into a tent hospital. And that's how they were operating and still are. Gary, I'm going to ask you about outside of China and Hong Kong. Southeast Asia has had a remarkably low number of cases. Um, Do you think that this is the same phenomenon that you were describing before, where people are accustomed to mask wearing, et cetera? What do you think is going on there? Um, Well, there are a few exceptions. Now, if we talk about countries like Vietnam, Um, Well, Singapore had a run of the problem because there were a lot of infections and transmission within the uh, migrant workers. They live in very crowded environment. But other than that, the local Singaporeans and uh, Korea, Korea had the experience of MERS outbreak and they at the very beginning, develop a lot of mobile testing sites that people can drive through and get the test done. And they also isolate the patients, whether they are mild asymptomatic or not. But if one look at countries like Indonesia or the Philippines, the situation is a little bit worse than the other countries that I mentioned earlier. But still, the numbers, we're talking about still way, way lower than what we are seeing in the U.S. or in the U.K. So I do believe that the masking and the behavior, I think the social distancing behavior, people stay more at home and with their own crowds. And I think they, in general, they trust the government a little bit more. So when the government said we would like to do testing within this block and it gets done. And also very early on, the border control was very tight. So if the infection arise from outside and if you have facilities to do your testing and do your isolation, then that really helps of reducing important cases, which will start another outbreak. And for example, if you look at the majority of Asian countries, now, if you look at Taiwan, for example, you know, you wouldn't believe the procedures that you have to go through. You know, when you get off the plane, you know, first of all, you need a negative test before arrival, and then you have another test on arrival, and you're shipped to a specific vaccinated hotel. It's very common among the Asian countries that there are vaccinated hotel that you have to stay there for two weeks, and you get another test. So that, you know, on one hand, you control the local transmission. On the other hand, you prevent the importation of cases, which start more outbreaks subsequently. And also, now because you start doing that, and there are also a lot of flight bans, so the number of people going into each of these countries are relatively small. 
and you would be able to test them. And in fact, in Hong Kong, all these imported cases nowadays, same thing in mainland China, we would sequence the virus and see which strain it is, and you would be particularly careful. Nowadays, it, we're talking about basically an isolation of three to four weeks. So that helps a little bit. But these sort of things, you cannot do it forever. Eventually, we have to find an alternate way to protect the population and release the border. But that border control and local control and the cooperation of the residents all probably contribute to the low transmission and also uh, the rapidity of controlling any small new outbreaks. Gary, since you brought up the new variant, which appeared in South Africa and then uh, was noted early on in the UK and has been found in many parts of the world, James, have new variant viruses been detected in Ireland and is there good surveillance going on for these variants? Yes, um, across Europe, uh, the B117 variant has been reported in at least 16 countries. So it's, it's actually it's quite widespread on the continent. Um, Ireland is one of those countries. So in December, it was thought that it made up less than 10% of the COVID in, in circulation. But more recently, it's thought to make up at least 45%. Um, so it seems to have grown in, in that intervening period to become the, the dominant variant in circulation. There is surveillance going on across Europe for us. So in Ireland, they take a sample of cases each week and test them for these variants. Thanks. And Krista, Gary's talking about Southeast Asia, the region where there is some unevenness, although the number of cases has been low. In the Caribbean, there's huge variation from island to island in terms of attack rates. Any idea of what's going on there? Well, in our region, there's huge variation in terms of traffic to the island um, in terms of tourism traffic. There's also huge variation in terms of the government's approach. And so if you look at some of the islands, we had absolute strict border control, nobody coming in, nobody going out for extended periods of time. On arrival again, like Gary said, there was testing. Some of the islands have taken on sending incoming visitors to designated hotels And most of the islands discussed a two-week isolation period on arrival. That is difficult. I think that our governments have found it difficult to pursue such strict regulations because we are so very dependent on tourism for our economic stability, for our economic prosperity. And it is an turnoff to visitors. I mean, we're, we're trying to balance safety with economic survival, really. It is a turnoff to visitors to have to add two weeks to their already maybe somewhat expensive vacation to stay in our facilities. And our governments are generally not funding that two-week stay in a hotel when you're isolated on initial arrival. And so that kind of approach was engendered among some of our island states and others not so much. So the region is made up of many small island states, all with different governments, all with different approaches to the issue at hand. We do have CARICOM, which is our unified body among the English-speaking Caribbean. And so through that interface, there are some agreements, but I think that speaks to the variation. I mean, the Caribbean is somewhat like a small Europe based on how it was initially governed. And so the approaches, the cultures vary from island to island. And I think that can speak to how we've seen infection rates 
differ, care differ, approaches from the governments differ from island to island. And then also remembering that populations differ between the Caribbean, the larger populations ranging from 10 to 12 million, again, only the size of maybe a large city in some of the bigger countries in the world. And other small island states have populations of 30 to 40,000, which could be like a county in the US. And so there's vast variation in terms of the number of people we're talking about, the terms of traffic we're talking about, in terms of the government's approaches. So I think that that could speak to why you see the variation among the Caribbean island states. What are the plans for vaccination where you are and how likely are people to take up the vaccine as it becomes available? James, why don't we start with you? Sure. So in Europe, the Pfizer vaccine has been approved and the Moderna vaccine has conditional improvement. It's thought that the AstraZeneca vaccine will likely have some form of improvement by the end of this month. In terms of rolling out the vaccine, Europe is generally thought to be lagging behind other areas such as the UK or Israel or or the States. At the moment, Ireland has 1.9% of the population vaccinated, which is among one of the highest in the EU and other countries being being lower. Overall, the European Union has kind of pre-booked more than 2 billion doses of vaccines but those mightn't come on stream until later in the year. So at the moment, it's more of a supply issue rather than logistically delivering the vaccine to the people who need it. In terms of vaccine acceptance, there was a recent survey of a 1,000 people in Ireland reported that 65% were accepting of the vaccine and 26% were hesitant and 9% were resistant. Um, So these findings align with other estimates from seven European nations where 26% of adults indicated they were hesitant or resistant to COVID-19 vaccine. And it's uh, similar to numbers reported from the U.S. also. So in this region of small island states, we are concerned about equitable and expedient access to the vaccine. I think that attitudes are very much in flux about who will take up vaccination from who won't. Um, We are watching what's happening on the world scene, and we're also very aware of our own cultural tendencies. But I couldn't say one way or another that persons will or won't, I think the movement is more towards will take up the vaccine. Given our small populations, it's hard to enter the marketplace and bargaining for procurement of the vaccine. Again, the numbers that I spoke to, you know, the largest being 10 to 12 million population, the smallest being 30 to 40,000 or even under 30,000. So imagine bargaining for purchase of just 40,000 vials of the vaccine. It's like a county going up against a first world country. So it's, it's difficult. Banding together under CARICOM has been one of our approaches to advocate for the equity of our vaccine distribution, but also the Inter-American Development Bank has made a number of pledges and to stand with Latin America and the Caribbean to help our governments procure the first batches of vaccine. And so in the Bahamas, we recently learned that through a program in conjunction with the IDB, as well as the World Health Organization's COVID-19 Global Access Facility, or COVAX, We've secured the doses to vaccinate the first 20% of our population, and we've been told that that may begin by the end of the first quarter of this year, 2021. And so looking forward to that, but it will remain a challenge. I think in the news, we've seen that some Caribbean islands have received first doses of the vaccine, and among those tend to be the islands that are still annexed to some of their larger associations, for instance, islands annexed to Britain or to the Netherlands, et cetera, um, because those larger countries to which they're still attached 
were able to include their numbers in their batch procurement. And the smaller independent states like the Bahamas, uh, like Jamaica, like Barbados, are slowly getting it on their own and through banding together with CARICOM or the IDB. Thanks. And Gary, Hong Kong presumably has access to a different set of vaccines from the West as some of the Chinese vaccines are now available. What's going on there? Yes, um, across Asia, actually, there are quite a few vaccines that have been purchased by the government. In fact, the majority of the countries are providing the vaccinations free of charge to the citizens. And in Hong Kong, it is the, as an example, our first batch of vaccine will be from Pfizer, the mRNA vaccine in a couple of weeks. And the second one that is set to be coming to the market in Hong Kong will be the Chinese vaccine, the inactivated CoronaVac. And the third one will be the uh, Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. And in many other countries in Asia, uh, for example, in Singapore, they have just started the Pfizer vaccination program. So they have already got the first batch of the vaccination. And then many other countries in Asia, it's kind of a mix. The government have purchased the mRNA vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, as well as the AZ, AstraZeneca vaccine, and also the Chinese vaccine. And by and large, you know, including Hong Kong, the hesitancy to vaccination, it's not as big as in Europe or America. But of course, logistically, it will be difficult, particularly for the mRNA vaccine because of the storage issue. So the governments usually would devise a plan that they would establish vaccination centers in the community where they develop the cold chain storage facilities, while they would also ask uh, private practitioners to help doing the vaccination. And of course, the private practitioners will be doing the AstraZeneca or the inactivated vaccine from China. So that's the current status. And there have been a few surveys, but these surveys are relatively small, but by and large, we get comparable numbers as the other survey. You know, some 60% or so of people would you know, say that they would like to have the vaccination. There are always 10, 15% of people uh, they would say, you know, I will wait and see and would not like to take the vaccine until they see more data coming out. So that's the current situation. I just wanted to comment that the cold chain is a very big hot topic, especially in our region. We have had success in our vaccination programs by targeting school-age children, children entering school. Um, and vaccine uptake has historically been very good in the Caribbean. But the cold chain is a constant challenge. In a region where electrical supply, where our power is on and off, especially during the summer months when it's very hot, it's difficult to maintain cold chain. And so that has definitely been a challenge when we think about which vaccine to go for talking about Pfizer and Moderna versus AstraZeneca. And so I think that will play in the minds of our local governments and health organizations in terms of which ones we try to procure. Because as you mentioned, Gary, cold chain is a huge issue with the vaccines that have come out. And the degree to which these vaccines need to be kept cold is very, very challenging. Thank you, Eric and Lindsay. And thank you, Krista, James, and Gary from joining us from around the world.